Well, there is a famous play by a guy named Shakespeare entitled Macbeth. And in that play, there's a villainous woman named Lady Macbeth who conspires with her husband to kill the rightful king of Scotland, whose name is Duncan. And so they kill Duncan, and part of the royal family, uh, that, that child is auditioning for the choir already, you know that? <laughs> Sometimes you forget when you get old, you forget about children, how wonderful they are and how, how wonderful they are. But anyway, um, where was I? Oh, Macbeth. Uh, uh, so as, as the story unfolds, uh, Lady Macbeth, who's this cantankerous, conniving woman, is absolutely overwhelmed by guilt. And so in Act 5, she goes through the castle rubbing her hands, saying, out, damned, spot, out. She, the imaginary blood of the king and his family and friends is, is on her hands, and she can't get rid of that. And so she loses her mind, and we're led to believe that she commits suicide at the end of the play. And I think about that when I hear a hymn entitled, a Marvelous Grace of Our Loving Lord, Grace That Exceeds All Guilt and All Sin, written by a woman named Julia Johnson. And her most famous stanza goes like this, Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide Whiter than snow we shall be today. Grace, grace, God's grace. And, and she says, Julia Johnson, the hymn writer, says, Dark is the stain that we cannot hide, whether it's something we've done, some, our, our thought life, our hidden motivations. That, there's a stain like Lady Macbeth. How do we get the stain off of our hands? And she says, Look, there is flowing a crimson tide. Whiter than snow we can be today. Now, what's interesting, Julia Johnson was never married. She was the child of a pastor. She was head of the Cincinnati Missionary Society for 20 years, and she taught the same two-year-old Sunday school class for 41 years. So she was not a wild, riotous, on-the-edge, hell-bent woman. She was God-honoring. And yet even in her pastor's daughter, one to honor Christ, 41 years teaching two-year-olds. Even she said, dark is a stain that we cannot hide. There, there are stains in our lives. We all have Lady Macbeth's stains. What can avail to wash it away? And of course, the answer of the Bible is, it's only the work of Christ. And we're studying this book of 1 Timothy. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the apostle Paul writes, but, but I received mercy as a persecutor of the church, as someone who hardly agreed with the murdering of God's people. I received mercy... For this reason, that in me as the foremost Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You're saved by belief in the work of Christ upon the cross. And in the book of Philippians, he writes very clearly, chapter 3, verse 8, I count everything that I ever held dear as a Pharisee, all my works, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all of these things, and I count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, having a righteousness not of my own, which is from what I do, the law, but which is through faith in Jesus. So, so when you come to faith in Christ, you acknowledge that what 
He did on the cross what you can never do for your, yourself. He was the sin bearer. He is the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. And, and so you're saved on the basis of looking to Christ by faith, saying, Lord, I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe sin has separated me from a holy God and that you paid the ultimate price for my sin. And that's called salvation. That's called the work of Christ. Now, now, in church history, the Reformers discovered that in the 16th century. It was a rediscovery of the gospel from the early church that had been layered over with rituals and rules and regulations. And so, and so they stood forth and said, they said, Behold, the glorious goodness of the mercy of Christ. And, and, and people, the established church of that day said, Boy, if you tell people, that they're saved by faith alone through the work of Christ alone, and they have nothing to do with earning their salvation. If you really teach them, then you're going to unleash people into wild, riotous, uncaring, unbridled, passionate living. And the Reformers, with one accord, Luther, Calvin, Bucer, Farrell, Zwingli, all of them said, you don't get the gospel. Because when you come to know Christ by faith, you receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit teaches us that we're to live life with gratitude as unto the Lord. Because the Bible says we're saved by grace through faith. And then one verse later says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We live with a sense of joyful responsibility, sober-minded gladness. In fact, one confession of faith said this, it is impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. See, it's impossible. By our fruit, you'll know that we're truly believers. And so it doesn't lead to life in light indifference, it leads to a sober-minded stewardship. I've been saying this the last few weeks. The steward is one appointed to give oversight to a provision who in turn must give an account. So joyful sobriety. For example, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says to the church of Philippi, you've, you've obeyed in my absence and in my presence, but now I plead with you to work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. It's not lighthearted no, it's, it's, it's sober joy, the call of a, a steward. Or Second Peter chapter 1, Peter says to the church, you add to your faith goodness, and to your goodness you add kindness, and to kindness you add patience and gentleness, and you add brotherly kindness, and you add love. And he says this, if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome, into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right before that, he says, work out, he says, make your calling and your election sure. But if you do these things, you'll never fall. But if you, if you add your faith, goodness, and the goodness, knowledge, and self-control, and perseverance, and gentleness, and brotherly kindness, and love, if you do these things, you'll never fall. You'll never fall. And, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, so I, I want... Us, me, I want us to not fall. I want us to go strong. And I, and I want us at, at the end of our lives, on the day of judgment, 
to receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as we live with joyful sobriety. Now, Jonathan Edwards is one of my heroes. Jonathan Edwards, 257 years ago today, died. March 22nd, 1758. He was 54 years old. He'd just been sworn in as president of Princeton College, and he received a smallpox vaccine, and he died of smallpox. But brilliant. But he, he preached a sermon about, about the joy of faith and about heaven. But let me just mention three things he said about joy. He said, we're filled with, with joyful sobriety, number one, because of our good estate or our standing in Christ, because we know the forgiveness of sins, we know the embrace of Abba Father, we have the hope of heaven, therefore we rejoice because our hope is in heaven. We have, the, the joy, we have a good estate. So secondly, this is kind of an aside, but secondly, he says, we have joy because there are times, there are seasons in our life when God, in an extraordinary fashion, comes down and blesses us with his presence, and we experience superabundant joy. This is what he says. There is an excellent, soul-satisfying sweetness. He uses the word sweetness here a lot. That sometimes fills the soul in the apprehension of the excellency of God. The soul dwells upon the thought and fixes on it and takes delight in God as the greatest good and the most delightful object of his contemplation. This pleasure is the sweetest pleasure that a Christian ever feels and is a foretaste of the pleasures of heaven itself. You just contemplate the glory of God and his triune goodness. You contemplate the greatness of Christ and the mercy of Abba Father. And he says it fills your soul with sweetness. At times God comes down. And then he goes on and he says this. He says... Just look at the last part. And it has sweet communion with God and tastes the sweetness of his love and knows a little of what is the length and breadth and height and depth of the love of Christ. I want to know that. I want you to know that. I want you to experience that as you contemplate the glory and the goodness of Christ. But then thirdly, he says this. The third kind of joy is found in doing that which is to the glory of God. The true love of God makes it sweet and delightful to the soul. The joy of the Christian not only arises in knowing and viewing, but also in doing. That's what Paul is saying here in this passage we've been studying in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, command those who are rich in this present age. He says, Timothy, command them to, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and to be willing to share. It says, in this way, they are storing up for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So that's just two points in this text. If I am to be filled with joyful sobriety, then I will, if, if, if I am not laying up good works, if I'm not being generous and willing to share, if I'm not doing these things, then I am not laying up a firm foundation for the coming age. I, I, I'm not serving Christ as I should. Now, let me give you an example of that. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is talking to a troubled church, right into a troubled church, and he, he's addressing people who are believers. 
He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, just listen to this, these six verses. He says, according to the grace that God has given to me like a, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care. Be careful. Take care. How he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So he says very clearly, there's a foundation, is Christ only, and we are building on this foundation. Therefore, take care, take care, be careful, take care, be careful. And he gives two types of builders. He says, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. What Paul says here is this. They're, they're the foundation, believers. Some believers build on the foundation using wood, hay, and straw. Okay? Then there's another group of believers who build using gold, silver, and costly stones. It's very clear. He says, and the day will bring it to light. He said, some will escape as if through the flames because they're built with wood, hay, and straw. They will not hear, well done, and good and faithful servant. They're in Christ. They're going to go to heaven. But, but they didn't live with joyful sobriety. They didn't take the words of 1 Timothy 6 to heart. This is to, be, to, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. And, and so would a straw escape as if through the flames? There is another group who builds with gold, silver, and costly stones. And their house will stand. And they'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And let me say to you very quickly, Paul says the day will bring it to light. We're going to be very surprised in heaven on the day of judgment. There are people that we little esteem who are warriors and generals and admirals in God's service. And there are others that we esteem very highly who are going to get by through the flames, like pastors or teachers or whatever. I mean, you just, I'm telling you, there are people sitting here today that are building on the foundation of Christ using gold, silver, and costly stones, and they will have a glorious reward. Others are not. See, I, I want us to live in such a way that we're building a firm foundation for the coming day. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul's addressing issues like immorality and lawsuits among believers and Christian liberty, all these thorny issues that are just falling upon the church. And he says this, verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have received from the Lord? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, 
So glorify God in your body. You're not your own. If you've trusted Christ, you're not the master of your fate or the captain of your soul. You belong to him. You belong to the triune God. John Calvin, the great reformer who died in 1564, wrote, When I remember that I am not my own, I offer up my heart presented as a sacrifice unto the Lord. And, and Calvin had a seal drawn up for, his, for himself, which was a hand with a heart extended to the heavens. I belong to the Lord. And so, so if, if you... If you see the Trinitarian glory of God, you see the, the wonder of Abba, Father, the redeeming work of Christ, the eternal God who became a man and died on the cross for our sins, and you see the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, and you cry out, Abba, Father, with j- j- glory and joy to say, I am not my own, fills you with confidence, and, and you say, Lord, just point me in the right direction, I'm going. See, that's what we need. See, see, if I see that, I will build a firm foundation. But if... I'm not convinced of the Abba Father goodness of God. If I don't have a clear vision of the wonder of Christ dying on the cross for my sins, if I don't plead it for the apparent presence of the Holy Spirit, then to say you're not your own, you belong to God, may terrify me. Rejoice in it, brothers and sisters. Firm foundation, the coming age. Point number two, if I'm not building a firm foundation for the coming age, if I'm not rich in good deeds, generous and willing to share, if I'm not doing those things, then it says here, do these things so that they may take hold of the life which is truly life. So, so if, if I'm not doing these things, I am not taking hold of the life that's truly life, both here and in the world to come. See, you, you, you take hold of the life that's truly life when you're do good deeds, you're rich in good deeds, and you're generous and willing to share, and you live for the Lord. I, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about... Um, is there a downside to the Christian faith? I, I know I'm a pastor, and so but I was thinking, is there a downside to the Christian faith? And I thought of three big areas, uh, sexuality, money, and relationships. And I thought, okay, sexuality. Is there a downside to what God says in the Bible about my sexuality? That God has made us male and female, and God says uh, you're to be married to one person of the opposite sex, uh, and you're to have sex only with them, and if you're not married, you're to exercise celibacy because God calls some people to that, and is there a downside to that? And then I, th- I thought about it a few years ago. It kind of hit me you know, maybe two decades ago. There was this incredibly beautiful woman on all the magazine covers, and, you know, you're a young guy, younger anyway, and you go, you know, you know good grief. Wow, I wonder what it would be like. And that, that, that crosses your mind, so you know, I don't want to go there. And I was watching a pregame show of NFL football, and she was a, made a guest appearance. I don't know why. And she gave the weather forecast, and then she was interviewed. And let me tell you something. It was really bad. I'd never heard her talk, and I just thought, ooh, this is bad. I mean, this is, I mean, the, the depth here is a birdbath in Arizona in July. I mean, it's bad. And then I, you have the proverbial statement, would you like to be trapped with this person in the elevator for one hour? No. No. And then I thought, you know, Lord, the Bible's right, isn't it? Proverbs 31, charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be revered. God's way is best. And as I get older, let me tell you, the thing that excites me is to see people married 45 and 50 and 60 years walking down the hall, holding hands, 
wives laughing at the same jokes they've heard for five decades. And wives, thanks for doing that. That's just, that's a gift to us. And, and you know, just kind of laughing at each other and having fun. And they've walked together. And there's nothing more beautiful than that. And I'm going, God's way is best. And the older I get, the more I say, God's way is best. And then I thought about, about, about money. I thought, about, well, how about, how, about, how about money? And I've been saying to you the last couple of weeks that I believe 10% bring to God's Storehouse, I think that's a, a biblical norm. Tithes and offerings, we should work towards that. And you need to think about that and plan and come before God. And, and of course, you, this is the verse that you're always going to hear. It's the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. But this is, this is very interesting to me. It's, it's, uh, if you were taking a survey and you were asked by uh, a survey in the church, how do you show your repentance and return to the Lord? What would your answer be? And the answer would be many things, but probably not this. this is, listen to this. This is Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So the reason you're not consumed is because I have an eternal covenant with you that I'm going to work in the people of Israel to bring out Messiah King. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? God answers, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? God says, in your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God says, you know, test me in this. See, sometimes you go without, absolutely. But God is able to give you joy and to extend your money. God, God, so God says, so if, if somebody says, how do we return to the Lord most people wouldn't say, well, tithe. Give. Don't rob God. So, so God is smarter than my financial planner, and I've got a good one. God is smarter than me, obviously. And God says, do this. He says, put me to the test. And we're missing blessings because we're not trusting God. So a third area is relationships. I've been dealing with a couple of people on the issue of forgiveness and um, just, just thought about relationships. We, we all, all of us, have, are going to have or will, whatever, to walk with people in forgiveness and to be forgiven. And forget, like an old Puritan said, forgiveness doesn't mean you trust your enemy, but it means you forgive him. So people say, what does forgiveness mean? Well, first of all, Matthew 6, Jesus says, if you forgive others, you're forgiven. If you don't, you're not. Pretty strong words. So, so forgiveness means, just in capsule, that, that, that you don't take revenge because Romans says revenge belongs to God. It means that you don't speak ill of them. It means that you pray for them. 
It means that you don't begrudge when good things happen to them. It means that if they confess their sin and seek reconciliation, you're standing there ready to go as far as, as you can go and even further. That's forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't mean you forget. Forgiveness doesn't mean if your CPA steals from you and goes to prison and comes out, that you're making your CPA again. That's what you call dumb. Not forgiveness. But I just thought that, 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 that if I don't forgive, then I get ulcers and anger and hardness of heart. God's way is best. Walk in forgiveness. It brings hope. Now, uh, I'm a Downton Abbey fan. Okay? So we wait until the season's over, and then we just watch them all in about a week. We just OD on Downton Abbey. So season five just came out, and we were first in the line of the library to get it, and we finished it yesterday. Uh, I've been watching Downton Abbey this week instead of watching March Madness. I am a good husband. <laughs> but thankfully, Downton Abbey was over last night in time to see the second half of the NC State victory and the second half of the Tar Heel victory, so that was good. God in his providence was very kind to me last night. So Downton Abbey, if, if, you, if, you, if you don't know Downton Abbey, you don't like it, then you're a cultural Philistine and a nabob, okay? Just admit it, you're just, you're an embarrassment to us all, so... Uh, Anyway, but Down Abbey is about this uh, English family's first season was uh, 1912 and we're up to 1924. Season five just ended, and I just read recently that season six is going to be the last season, which, yeah, it's like doing away with March Madness or something. It's just a Super Bowl. Anyway, but Down Abbey, there's a Lord, Lord Grantham who's just a wonderful man. You've got Mary who's had a personality disordered the last season. She needs to get straightened out. You've got Lady Edith. You've got uh, Bates and Anna and Mr. Carson. You know, it's a great group. But the, the one who steals the show week after week is the grandmother, the Violet, Violet Crawley, just week after week, played by Maggie Smith. She's phenomenal. So in this last season, she's talking to a friend about regrets from the past, and she's old, and this is what she says. Hope is a tease designed to keep us from accepting reality. And she, I went, oh. Hope is a tease designed to keep us from accepting reality. No hope. And the gospel is the gospel of hope. The gospel says life is a gift and the best is yet to be. Example. Occasionally on Sunday, there's a Sunday brunch at a restaurant downtown. And we go. And they have a Sunday brunch. And, and the cheapest thing on the menu is what we always get. It's a high-end restaurant. It's a hamburger. Uh, with french fries. I know I shouldn't eat french fries, but I do when I go down there. And, and the hamburger is only 12, it's 12 bucks, which is a lot for hamburger, but this high-end restaurant, they, they, they grind up their steaks to make their hamburger. This is a glorious experience. <laughs> I mean, you eat this hamburger with some cheese on it and, and lettuce, tomato, and you, you, 
you, you eat it and you want to stand up and salute the flag and sing God bless America. <laughs> it, is, it is so good. And some guy just saw me after and said, I'm this cleansing diet. I can't eat meat for 21 days. I'm on day seven. This was not a good sermon illustration. So anyway, I'm, um, so I'm sitting there, and I eat this, and this, this thought has crossed, gone through my mind. If, if I do not believe in the hope of heaven, if I believe that when I die, there's nothing, if I believe that you, just go, you, get, you get old and you cease to exist, if I, if I really believe that, then I'm going to curse this hamburger in this regard. I'm getting older. It's hard to taste sometimes. I can't eat with abandon like I used to. I curse old age. But, listen to me, if I believe that heaven awaits, then I eat that hamburger, and I say to myself, if it is this good here, how much more glorious will it be in heaven? You see? If the friendship of loved ones is glorious now, what will heaven be like? If I saw a sunset Friday night, I saw the sunset. If this sunset, this past Friday night, is as glorious as it is now, what will heaven be like? And so it fills you with hope and joy in believing. It fills you with a sense of, this is a passage, glory awaits. Let's live in such a way that we build a firm foundation for the coming age. So we'll receive a rich welcome in the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. We're not our own. We belong to Him. Now, this past week, we had the funeral of a young man who died of cancer at age 17. Grew up in this church. Uh, mom and dad, vitally involved in this church, has two older brothers. Uh, young man, but he got the gospel. By God's grace, he was trained in his home. He was trained by some key leaders here. And he really got the gospel at an early age, and he lived it. To read his blog was to worship he talked about God has a plan for me, whatever happens. Uh, he was very clear. He said, one of the last things he told his dad is, whatever happens to me, I want God to get the glory. That's 17. He got it. And, and so the whole funeral was centered around the hope of heaven and the fact that this 17-year-old got it. And people say to me frequently, now, I know that was a hard funeral. It was. And it just takes the emotional energy out of your being for three days. But listen to me, much more difficult is to do the funeral of an 80 or 85-year-old and you're not sure where they stand with the Lord. Now, I could stand here Thursday at 1130 and say, we believe that Dawson is with the Lord. And it was glorious. But sometimes you just don't know. So live so we'll know. So Dawson's dad, Charlie, received this telegram, excuse me, telegram, the email the day after the funeral, sent it to me. I said, can I share it? He said, absolutely. So I'm going to change some names, but it's written by a man who says, I don't know what I believe about faith. I'm not, I'm not, where, I'm not sure what I believe about this gospel stuff. He says this, I've struggled and continue to struggle with the issue of an all-powerful, loving God. It often comes up in rhetorical questions with me like, why six million Jews? Why ISIS? Why does a 17-year-old young man as wonderful as Dawson, your son, have to die? We all struggle with those things. And there's no perfect answer except 
We live in a fallen world that's gone wrong. But continue reading. Those questions were swirling about in my head when I woke up yesterday, and they continued on the drive to Dawson's service. Indeed, by the end of the day, I had to go home with a pounding migraine. But Dawson's service, he drove in from out of state. Dawson's service has maybe, just maybe, begun to answer at least part of the issue for me. Your faith, your family's faith, clearly said to everyone with ears that Dawson had been called home, and home was the most wonderful place. You stood in that receiving line after the funeral and smiled. I walked into that gym and the Jackson 5 were playing okay. It could have been the Stones, but I'll give you a pass. And all I could see about me was the radiant joy of you and your family. So this morning, I woke up and I said, okay, let's, let's change our perspective a bit, a bit. Suppose my son got a call from the New York Yankees telling him that they wanted him in New York. And they were willing to pay him $50 million. And in two years, he was going to be their starting second baseman. What parent would stand in the way of that? What parent wouldn't feel incredible joy and pride? Any parent would miss the child, but it would be like saying, oh, for goodness sake, go, seven exclamation points, close quote. And so this morning I was thinking, after going through all that I went through yesterday, it seems to me that you think that Dawson got called up to the New York Yankees. All my questions aren't answered, but you and your family, maybe, just maybe, started me down the path. That's so powerful. He gets the gospel. He gets the hope of heaven, but he's not there. But he gets what we say. You're called up. There's hope that's realized. So church, live. Firm foundation. Coming age. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for men and women around us who get the gospel and who live it. Who are faithful stewards. And we, we acknowledge, uh, as, as all of us think, and we're so reminded that there are people that sometimes we discount who will be uh, received gloriously in heaven. Uh, so thank you for that. And, and uh, just forgive us for ever making distinctions. Lord, you know people's hearts. But help us live as people who are building a firm foundation for the coming day. Lord Jesus, I pray. And uh, help us to be stewards, stewards of all you've given us. In Jesus' name, 